welcome back to Pod 45, the podcast companion to Post 45 Contemporaries. I'm your host, Contemporaries co-editor, Michael Doherty. Today's episode responds to our recent cluster on the cultural juggernaut that is The Bachelor, ABC's long-running dating-slash-competition-slash-reality series. Indeed, that question of exactly what kind of show The Bachelor is does arise in this conversation, hosted by my contemporaries colleague, Francisco Robles. Francisco sat down to discuss The Bachelor cluster and the phenomenon of the show itself with the cluster's co-editors, Ria Moffat and Annie Barres, alongside Robin Hershkowitz and Emily Edwards, who contributed to the cluster. Let's now join Francisco and his guests as they introduce themselves to you. Hi, everyone. My name is Francisco Robles. I'm one of the Post45 co-editors. I'm here with contributors and editors of The Bachelor Cluster. So my name is, again, Francisco Robles. I'm here in South Bend, Indiana. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame, and I was the Post45 editor who worked with the editors and contributors to edit this cluster. Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Rhea Marlene Moffat. Um, I use she, they pronouns. I am with you all today um, from Chicago, Illinois, um, and I am currently a PhD student um, in the English department at the University of Chicago. Um, And then for this cluster, I was a co-editor along with Annie Barris. Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Annie Barras. I'm an independent researcher and scholar currently located in Brooklyn, New York, um, and I am a co-editor of this cluster along with Rhea. Hello, uh, I'm Robin Hershkowitz. I recently got my PhD in American Culture Studies at Bowling Green State University. I'm currently an independent scholar and a book coach. I am coming to you right now from Nashua, New Hampshire, and I am the, the co-author of Will You Accept This Job? Love, Labor, Love, and Bachelor Nation, along with Emily Edwards. Hi, um, and I'm Emily Linnell Edwards. I'm coming to you all from Queens, New York. Um, I'm an assistant professor of digital humanities at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, um, and I am um, the other part of the co-author of Will You Accept This Job? Um, Love, Labor, and Bachelor Nation. Thank you all for being here. Uh, It's dreary here. I don't know how it is there, but uh, where you all are. But yeah, we'll get started. So what I wanted to hear first is the origins of this cluster. Just because we at Post45 were pretty excited when we received this. Um, So could you talk us through this, what the idea was, what the process was, and so on? Yeah, um, I guess I can start and then Annie jump in at any point. Um, I think like entering a PhD program, especially in English, I kind of had this like dirty little secret (laughs) of my like obsession with The Bachelor. Um, So I kind of like was in my own little like side of like quietly watching this as like a, you know, escapist television. And it was something that I would use to like connect with my students to like when I was teaching, it would, you know, come up and that would be like a point of connection. Um, And I don't remember how the word got out or when Annie and I started talking about this. Um, but I quickly realized that I was very much so not alone. Um, there was many people across campus in our department watching The Bachelor throwing parties. Um, and Annie was somebody that I connected with over that. Yeah, and I'll pick up there. I was really happy um, when I met when I learned that Rhea also watched The Bachelor because it was kind of a dirty little secret for me too. Um, But I think we just talked about this for a while and I don't know exactly the moment when we were like, we should do a cluster on this. But um, it was something that we'd talked about wanting to, you know, write something about or put into some form. And I think 
both of us are really big fans of post 45 generally and contemporaries. And we realized this would be a good home for the kind of um, critical, but fan related scholarship um, that we wanted to bring together here. Robin and Emily, when did you all get involved in what, uh, because you've written on The Bachelor together, so was it just a sort of natural outgrowth of your working together? Was it something a little bit different, given that it's a short-form thing? We also discovered our mutual interest in The Bachelor during graduate school as well in um, the PhD program in Bowling Green. Um, and I remember sort of, you know, finding that point of connection and inviting Robin over to my apartment as my only friend who wanted to watch. I forget what season it was. Um, so we've been talking about The Bachelor for several years now. Um, and so Robin found the CFP and we just felt like this was a great opportunity to take our gossip and sort of text messages into an actual kind of like formal response to our relationship to the show. Yeah, when I saw the CFP, I was, did they have us in mind? Like, were they reading our minds or <laughs> sort of sending out a signal for us? Yeah, and that's true. This was one of the first clusters to actually successfully, and I think very successfully, use the CFP process. Uh, Post 45 often works through either invitation or coterie or now increasingly through CFP. And the Bachelor Cluster was, in fact, one of the first ones uh, to do this. And so, yeah, it must be hard, though, to select certain essays. But, yeah, it was a really successful cluster and a lot of co-written works, too, or a couple of co-written works that I thought were really successful. One of them... Uh, well, it, one was Robbins and Emily's, but another one by Lauren uh, Nelson and Emma Train was about queer watch parties and queer affect and watching this, which so hearing you all talking about being a fan, but also being analytical about this made me also think about that essay and just what does it mean to navigate these spaces, um, especially one that's so deeply normative, which we'll talk about quite a bit. But why is it such an attractive show, given how deeply normative it is? Uh, again, we'll talk about that, but any thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I can add, um, and maybe this will come up later, but when I'm a fan of something, to, for me to be a fan of something is to critically um, be really critical about it and kind of pull it apart and pull out the layers. Um, for me, it's it almost feels camp. It feels like melodrama, but in a way... Um, that is so over manufactured it's very meta so i just kind of i'm drawn to it that way and it's the kind of annoyance that feels good when you're annoyed at something i don't really believe in hate watching but a little bit of annoyance about something can really keep my attention is that the broader experience that you all have as fans and as critics um so how do you actually work along those lines I thought this was a really interesting question because um, before hearing it, I never really, I guess, qualify myself as a fan of The Bachelor um, because I too felt like sometimes I was hate watching it um, just because I would get so frustrated with certain aspects of the show. Um, but I would still tune in, you know, every week to see what happened because I was so invested in um, in the people and in the stories and then also in, um, you know, the social media conversation. It felt like being part of a community. So I guess I am a fan of The Bachelor, particularly given how much time I devote to it and also just following the other contestants on other platforms. Um, so this was my first time doing Doing critical work um, as a fan on something that I consume for entertainment. So that was actually a really interesting process. But um, I felt like 
you know, there was no going back once Robin and I started having some of these conversations to just kind of, you know, turning your mind off and watching The Bachelor. Um, And so this was an interesting opportunity to kind of put into a formal structure some of those um, like half form critiques that we talked about. Um, But it was, you know, challenging in other ways. Um, I think my relationship to it might be a little bit different um, because I very much feel like I started out as a fan. Um, I remember being like in college and undergrad um, and being a fan of the show. And then as I got older and my critical consciousness and political consciousness um, expanded, um, my relationship to the show changed as well. Um, So then I did kind of have to navigate like, what does it mean to have been a fan of this thing, but also be getting these new perspectives and understandings of things. How do I reconcile this to how much can I turn my brain off and just watch how much is that um, critical eye kind of coming in. Um, So I think it's a, it's a line I'm still like learning to navigate. Um, But it was interesting and really fun to um, start doing this work um, with all of you. Yeah, and I'll say, you know, since we've talked about co-authoring and relationships that form because of The Bachelor, I think the thing that, you know, the reason I started watching it was because my friends in college watched it. And then I had a really close friend who I lived with after college. And that became for years that we lived together, a very serious ritual Bachelor night. Um, And yeah, I think also it's like deepened by friendship with Rhea and also with Lauren and Emma, who are also friends from grad school at UT. So that's been a thing that, you know, even when my critical voice is super activated and I'm embarrassed for political reasons to say that I watched The Bachelor, um, the thing that keeps me coming back to it is, you know, being able to talk about it um, with friends or just other people in my life in a way to connect um, yeah, around something that is ridiculous, but something that there's plenty of content to, to connect around to. What you're suggesting is that maybe it's hard to make demarcations between fandom and critique, even as it's important to maybe separate that out. But it really isn't a clear distinction, or it stops becoming a clear distinction. And I think it's true of almost anybody who works on any media form or literary form. Most of us write about things that we're fans of. I can't think of any people who write about, like, say, a novel that they truly hate. Sometimes. But you rarely have somebody who truly hates something and says, I will devote time to this book or to this work. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that maybe there's something about The Bachelor or about reality television or television more broadly that demands acknowledgement of fandom and critique. Or is there something that you think you're able to set this aside because it does actually have a continuity with more traditional modes of affect, scholarship, critique, and so on? I think for me, um, that the demarcation of being a critic and fan, I think that we can move between those two modes in interesting ways. Um, and I think that engaging in critical work for me has been looking requiring to look at outside structures um, and, you know, history, society, and that um, fandom and fan work, it can be generative and social, but it doesn't always necessitate or ask for that structural change. And I think that there's a place for both that critical work and fan work are both generative in different senses. Um, But I think, you know, just like I don't want my fandom to necessarily be all structural revolution, maybe, you know, that there's a time and place for enjoyment and pleasure of things that we consume. Um, I think that we can move between those two spaces. And I think that The Bachelor um, throws those into relief in another way. I think it's one of the few um, sort of monocultures that we have left, um, 
you know, which which is a good thing because, you know, uh, just, you know, back in the day when everybody was watching the same movie, it was always a very, not representing many people, just the, the majority. But I think um, it may be one of the ones that are lasting. So it kind of overlaps because actually the, the more critical conversations I have, um, it actually helps frame them like about race and class and heteronormativity. I mean, it gives like an anchor uh, for people that know about it and, um, you know, to see where kind of to start at a place where what criticisms they're seeing and what kind of they go on to, I think is a really good conversation starter for, for other issues, which is why I've always been drawn to study culture and popular culture. It seems like it's a very, I think, unique and useful payoff then to maybe maintaining those those dual roles, or at least just refusing to separate them out so clearly. Uh, to cleave something like that, maybe there is too much lost. So, do you think that there's something maybe more synthetic or vigorous when you blend the two? This is just, I guess, a personal question. Do you all feel like you actually are able to bring something that you would lose otherwise by blending fandom and critique? I think um, blending the two brings up like a level of like generosity. Um, and I think that tending more toward a critical lens at times, um, but with something that I do enjoy, um, kind of gives me touch points with like maintaining those points of community. Um, Cause like I said, like we said, you know, we've been fans of the show for a while. We've watched it in different circles. Um, and I think Robin made a good point. Um, maintaining that fandom um even while critiquing it does kind of allow you to i don't know just like see what's still there even amongst things that don't work and especially continue to not work or get exacerbated as time continues to go on um but yeah i don't know i think that combination of that role is a really open and generous space for like maintaining community and like furthering those conversations. Also the bachelor is so normative, right? That's its whole premise that it's, um, it's almost a liberating position to be fan slash critic of because you're all, you know, even if you have never taken a feminist theory class in your life, like anyone could recognize the, you know, normative and, um, yeah, structures of The Bachelor. And like um, Robin mentioned, I mean, it's it's campy in that way, right? So it's a, it's a place of critique that that starts from that that recognition and you don't have to do a lot of throat clearing or defending it and you can just wholeheartedly jump into the, you know, to the fandom and with the, uh, from a place of critique, I guess, if that makes sense. Uh, I definitely agree. And I think that sense of community is really exciting. And I found that the most like creative cultural criticism has come from fan communities of The Bachelor. I'm thinking and of not traditional academic essays, but of podcasts and of sub stacks that I subscribe to, um, like Two Black Girls, One Rose, their podcast I absolutely love. Um, and Ashley's Bachelor newsletter, Ash Talks Batch, um, her sub stack, I think that some of the most sort of interesting and responsive type of writing is coming from fans who exactly don't have that or 
I don't know, aren't bringing like all of these like really sort of elitist credentials, but are engaging in a deconstruction of the show um, in a really meaningful way, um, in a public facing way. Um, And that's the type of work that I find most exciting when we sort of blend fandom and cultural criticism and and democratize it. I would add that not just my personal fandom, but fandom in general, um, I'm also going to um, identify myself as the oldest in the group, probably, because I watched it from season one, um, and I always kind of had my eye on it. I didn't watch every season um, religiously, but I, I kind of have just been around it. Um, that fandom and you know the ways that we engage in fandom have changed the show. Um, it's very responsive to fans. It's very um, sometimes a covert wink-wink to the fans. Sometimes it's it's just a very obvious response um you know as far as um i don't really get into it a lot but a lot of the off-screen sort of um gossip and antics um come back to play in the show um the you know the show talks a lot about a lot of things on the show talk about what's happening on social media with them so i think fandom in itself has ultimately changed the show and i think i just think that's really interesting um, when you think about production or um, kind of the role of, of the show within fandom itself. Yeah, and it's super interesting to think about that change over time, like when the show started and there what there was a fan culture that built up over a few seasons, but then it felt like something materially changed when social media became and kind of the antics, as you said, Robin, became such a, a live part of the show and it became you know bachelor nation um and i think what's fascinating too is in a couple essays noted this the way that the show both tries to like cordon itself off from the social media world and maintain this um you know ideal that it's actually a a a court a show about courtship and not about people you know wanting to become famous or um or this like a bigger universe, but at the same time, like totally relies on that for viewers and, um, you know, the, the reason that the show is so popular. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about something that you just uh, pointed out, Annie, too, with uh, both Robin and Emily's essay, but also Megan's essay. Being part of the Bachelor Nation means it's actually a job now. And so, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, so speaking to what you all were saying, so much of the data produced about this show was by fans, right? The very famous graphs about screen time based on race, ability, and so on. It's really remarkable how much effort was put into this by fans, people posting this stuff on Tumblr or on Instagram and elsewhere. It's a really thoroughgoing sort of fan culture that is also a very critical culture. And even just seeing the way that the show explicitly responds to fan critiques, fan desires, is truly remarkable. It's almost like a soap opera where they're sort of feeding the lines to you in some ways, and you've got to respond. It's just really, I, I can't think of many other shows that have as consistently been this responsive to fan culture. We can see it, right? But it's just so thorough. It's just so ongoing. And even thinking about the fact that, as many of you pointed out, Bachelor viewership has been decreasing, but the Golden Bachelor shot it right back up. We've got millions of viewers per episode. So the way that this universe, the way that this media sphere has been finding ways to reinvent itself is really intriguing. And I I think cause for further discussion. So 
In terms of even just the data that was produced, one of the things that really struck me about your essays, uh, Robin and Emily, was the data that you produced about the change over time of jobs. I never thought about this. I'm not sure people thought to quantify this before. So could you all talk to me about where this impetus came from, the other ways that you've seen this working, the data collection, the writing that you've done elsewhere, but also here. So what was that like uh, doing this work to gather this information? Yeah, as the um, Robin was first author, and I was the the second second author, the data data cruncher. Uh, this actually, I pulled a lot of the data from fan sourced like bachelor wikis. So thank you to all of those people that are updating all of that information. Um, but it was actually a lot easier to source the data than I expected because fans have kept such meticulous records of you know, um, the jobs on the Chirons. So that process was was not so difficult, but then standardizing um, all the jobs over time that, um, you know, just took some work in Excel. Um, but Robin and I have talked about, um, we're obsessed with people's jobs on reality television. You know, every single season we watch, we're like, oh, look, like a fellow grad student, how did they receive leave? Um, so we had been talked about, you know, talking about this for so long. So we were just obsessed with what people do for work. Um, and we just wanted to kind of apply data analytic methods to this. That's kind of my research area and expertise. And so this felt like a great opportunity to, um, you know, put actual kind of numbers um, and trends on something that I think we're all thinking about, oh, people go on the show to get famous, but is that really true? And can we kind of chart a rise of internet labor, um, influencer culture by looking at this kind of jobs data? So that was kind of the the impetus. Yeah. I don't know if that sounds accurate, Robin. Yeah. Um, we actually, we did come up with it because we're also so interested in job, but I think we were so concerned with our own job searches um, throughout of it. So we were already thinking about it. And actually, I got my PhD in between it getting written and getting published and got a job. So it was very much on my mind. Um, yeah, we I'm fascinated, um, as is many people these days, um, about job as identity and sort of pulling back on identifying ourselves with our jobs and the many many issues with that. And I'm also um, fascinated by what, because the main three identifiers of people are name, age, job, when they first come on the show. And the idea of like, well, what do you do? And kind of how media um, uses that um, in The Bachelor. And when a bachelorette or a bachelor gets like a silly job, that's not even a job, you know, they're not going to last. Uh, like Chicken Lover or... I don't know, wasn't there like mama's boy or something like that? Um, and I know I did I did source in the article about why that happens. Um, but, you know, when um, in the article we talked about, there was um, on Dr. Travis Stork's season, there was another doctor and she was just like, why didn't you pick me? I'm a doctor. Like it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like her, her position doesn't automatically guarantee an identity and, and just fascinated because, um, much like the normative um, things that go on, usually the bachelorette is expected to move to where the bachelor is and looking at her job, is it sort of a, a management job or project manager? And those are perfectly legit jobs in the world, but on the bachelor, it kind of, to me, it has this generic idea that this is just a jobby job and, you know, she'll, she'll be able to figure something out, you know, what, because these jobs are everywhere and it doesn't matter as much. 
That was truly one of the most fascinating findings that you all pointed out is how many of the more abstract jobs that seemed mobile uh, seemed to mm -hmm. correlate. I mean, you, you were, you're a very careful scholar, so you didn't say this absolutely correlates or this is a causative yeah. thing. But on the other <laughs> hand, our data was not, not enough. Yeah. But still it's yeah. remarkable. It's like, aha, uh -huh, this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, the mobility of certain people or even just, yeah, some people with very specific cool jobs down uh because it's there they can't there's something about futurity there that is an mm -hmm, unspoken exactly. assumption so fascinating mm -hmm. and i was truly just gobsmacked by the data again it, it's uh data that you collated here and put together and analyzed i just it's something that again as a very traditional literary scholar i would never think to do but you all just really did so what were some of the most interesting jobs that people had in your data I have to look at it again. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking, but I mean, I know I mentioned graduate students, but just like the level, we always would like look up like, so a graduate student in what, like what program? Um, and so that was, you know, are they in comps? Um, but there were some interesting specific careers, but um, like we discussed, we started seeing less and less of these like specific jobs, like gerontologist or funeral director or, um, I think there was an IT specialist, like a journalist, like in these earlier seasons, but we just started seeing less and less of that as time went on. Um, and more of, you know, as Robin suggested, some of these kind of like quirky jobs, either jobs that are fundamentally generic or jobs that um, signal contestants as not um, serious, you know, contenders for the heart of the bachelor. But I think, yeah, gerontologist was one of my There my was an, an immunologist on one season and they kind of made that. So if you have a very specific job, it, it's almost like a bonus because then you get more than a, I was going to say one dimensional personality, but kind of a zero dimensional personality. And it kind of, you know, and she would say, quote unquote, nerdy things, science things, and kind of that what gave her her quirky character. Um, you know, uh, there was a, a contestant who was a teacher, a, a kindergarten teacher or various others, and that kind of gave them personality meaning that they were nurturing and probably be able to have kids in the future, which is a whole other <laughs> problem. But um, yeah, I would also, I just want to give, um, give credit to Emily for the visualizations because in her work, she does amazing visualizations in sort of a humanities program. So we were, um, we're always looking for unique ways to use visualizations because we're, we're, we like where the data and the humanities collide. Yeah, it was very beautiful and useful graphics. A lot of humanities <laughs> graphics around data are beautiful, but actually do not. How do I want to put this? They do not index the data very well. Uh, it's just cool or like a Google Ngram. Cool. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it tells me besides it's a cool sort of constellation of words. Mm -hmm. But the way that you all set up this data was really fascinating and was able to you were able to aesthetically appreciate it, but also make good comparisons. And actually, for anyone else who wants to use this information, it's right there. It's really excellent comparatively presented data. Yeah. So I, I was, uh, again, I was really enthralled by this question of the jobs. And also one of the things that you both are saying, it makes me think that maybe anyone who wants to work further on this, is there a sort of characterology of the reality TV show uh, contestant? What does it mean to build a character or to develop a character? It's, I think, one of the more fascinating ways that we maybe, to, you know, borrow like a professional wrestling term, we sort of have bind the kayfabe of it all. Yep. They're building a character and they're actually developing character. We don't think of it this way. We think of it as personality or as real life. But we know that there are editors. We know that there are writers. We know that there are people who make production decisions. We know that characters are able to repeat dialogues or have multiple dialogues. 
of the same thing. We know this, yet we have to buy into this. So there's something in there about the way that the realism is developed in almost a very old school way. And we'll talk about this with uh, Emily Bacall's essay in the novel of manners, but how do you build a character in a reality TV show? And what you all are saying is that actually Jobs has something to do with this and the ways it makes you either mobile, flexible, or maybe too specific. Um, what can you talk about? And what does the bachelor or bachelorette want to know about you as a person? And what does America want to know about you as a person? I think too. Oh yeah. And I'll just, this actually, this project has been so interesting and inspiring for me. I'm planning to continue it and data crunch, um, every season, um, in my next book project that I'm working on and sort of hit up the, um, not just the bachelor, but look at bachelorette male contestant jobs. Um, because I think that that is a really sort of underexplored area of how, um, sort of masculinity and labor intersects in interesting sort of ways on the show. Yeah, and if there's even a difference to I that that's really fascinating. Oh my gosh! Okay, so be on the lookout uh, for this book. So, in terms of, and you both mentioned this, but what was the change over time? Because uh, you do have the distribution in the article, so you know, listeners, please check out the article. But what was the sort of most remarkable change over time? If you all could distill it, or if you don't feel like it, that's fine too. But what was the most remarkable sort of trend in the change over time for you all? I think we called it, um, well, Robin, really, I think this was you, the the banalization of careers, that that's really what we saw was that jobs trended towards more generic um, and harder to categorize for me over time, um, that the process of working with, you know, what sort of category does this does coordinator fall into um, became more of a question versus, you know, oh, this person is is a kindergarten teacher. So um, jobs became more generic um, and banal. I think that that was kind of the the surprising upshot that we found. Yeah, a lot of a lot of we had to recategorize a lot of things just, be, you know, kind of make it make it a little more palpable. But manager um became very prevalent and different kinds of manager or just sometimes it just was manager. Um, and that is a term that is used in the working world to mean a lot of different things. Um, you know, are they manager of people, are they manager of an establishment? Um, I think, and I just want to clarify, like the, the banalization doesn't mean that, I mean, maybe those jobs are boring, but it's kind of this idea of jobs are just a thing that we do, which in a way I think is positive, but it's also kind of, making it this very kind of like big blob of, of what a job is, a business job. Um, so I think I think that's also, um, you know, not to ignore that that's the reflection of how jobs are going. Um, but I actually, something, you know, thinking about is, um, and Emily, I've talked about this, about um, remote jobs now as a, um, along with the gig economy now is kind of the standard and how is that going to affect The Bachelor? I actually think it's going to help a lot of people get to be on The Bachelor. You know, there's more flexibility. Um, so I think that there's always, I think that this could really go in a lot of different directions as far as, you know, what it looks like for future seasons. Yeah, I at least assumed, I don't know what you all felt and maybe Rhea and Annie, when you were reading the piece, what you assumed, but I assumed that also manager was euphemism for influencer. Like a, a sort of like because you manage yourself or you're sort of managing your own career. So sort of self-employed manager. I, I at least in my very cynical worldview was like, oh, anybody can be a manager if you're managing your own career. 
uh, or if you're you're in charge of one very uh, ungrateful employee yourself, uh, you know that's like a very you know intractable, ungrateful, yeah. uh, trying their hardest, but you know they don't do what you want them to do. Um, but at least for me, reading this, it was so fascinating to see this. Yeah. You know. Sometimes they'll say content manager, which we know means influencer usually um but i don't know if they've actually emily remind me do have has anybody come on the job and said i'm an influencer i think it's 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 kind of still in business terms of content we've had a socialite kit i believe socialite's yeah, a different socialite traditional different. Yeah, yeah 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 socialite that's maybe maybe a little older term for us folks remember but socialites yeah it kind of corresponds with you know sort of social media personalities yeah, and I was going to say, too, I mean, when I read your article, I was thinking about, yeah, this, you know, the jobs become more banal, more generic. And is that a way almost um, for contestants to make themselves more um, appealing as a potential influencer or content manager? You know, if somebody comes on the job and says, I'm, I work at a bank, um, how likely are they going to be able to be, you know, position themselves, I guess, as a as a content manager and influencer, whereas if they're kind of a, a blank slate when they come on, um, like they're more likely to be uh, pursued by advertisers or other um, brands. And I think to that point, too, it's we talked we talk a lot about like being here for the right reasons um, in the Bachelorverse um, with after reading your piece and thinking about the banalization of labor. I almost felt too like it was normalizing um, people coming on in search of becoming influencers, um, both like one, like Annie said, allowing them to position themselves in that way. But two, like it, I think it really does complicate um, what it means to be there for the right reasons and is like more normalizing the fact that, you know, there's so many people coming on the show and only one person wins. What is, you know, what are the right reasons and this is where like kind of the kayfabe comes up, like with the wrestling term, because the right reason is supposed to be to come on to find love. But in this day and age, like what delusional person would think that's the real reason for coming on? And the right reason is to be an influencer. But it's like we still can't say that because we're still trying to keep up this ruse. Um, but um, yeah, I, I just I mean, that's kind of like one of my favorite tropes in these shows is is they're not here for the right reasons. But you are. <laughs> it's just that The Bachelor says that more than any other show I can think of. It's Honestly, kind of it's just not even close. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like the original. Are you here for the right reasons or not? Because, uh, you know, something like the real world. No, they're not there for the right reasons. And everybody knows it. Because um, what are they there for? Nobody knows yet. Um, but something like The Bachelor, the, the competition show, maybe you see this in Top Chef. Maybe you see this in RuPaul's Drag Race. Maybe you see this in... Um, top model but not to the same degree I, I think you do a little bit more in top model perhaps maybe just thinking of some of tyra's famous tirades they're generally around people not being there for the right reasons um but otherwise i it's just to, in, to my mind so firmly associated with the bachelor that for me at least it just that's what always pops up when people say are they here for the right reasons or not it's just there's like a one-to-one -one connection for me at least yeah. And Anastasia, I remember, I think she was one contestant that really got hit with that charge on Zach's season that as if she, you know, had mentioned allegedly some type of social media followers and she was, you know, really attacked for not being there for the right reasons, but as if the right reason is, 
you're there to marry Zach Shell Cross because you're 22 years old and like you need to get married today. Uh, so it's just um, it's really interesting. But I, I feel like that has for, sort of filtered out into the larger romance reality um, TV ecosystem that we can see that type of rhetoric on Love is Blind, for example. Um, so it's it's interesting to see that how The Bachelor um, as the kind of the blueprint still sort of, I don't know, guides the cultural conversation that there are normative and acceptable reasons to kind of engage in these spaces. And they're not for, you know, economic stability, possibly, but therefore, you know, a, a union of marriage. This is sort of shoehorning in the conversation about diversity. But on the other hand, one of the things that to me is interesting is how the right reasons often allow people to do bad things on the show. I think of, for example, the famous example of uh, Chris Harrison defending Rachel Kirkconnell. And part of the reason he can defend her is because she's there for the right reasons. Uh, part of the reason certain behaviors can be defended is because they're there for the right reasons. They're just guileless or they're innocent. One of the remarkable things, I think, of course, of that moment is just the spotlight it shed on the deep-seated racism of the Bachelorverse, but also that, you know, when I was going back and looking at it, she basically said, please don't defend me. This is terrible. And Chris Harrison still went out of his way to say, actually, I'm going to defend this person. So what is it about Chris Harrison? What is it about the sort of broader normative ideas about chivalry that sort of guide people's conversations about the right reasons. Is there is there actually some sort of bizarre chivalric romance still taking place here? And how does that interact with questions of race and racism in particular in the show? I mean, I think Robin and I've discussed this, that The Bachelor feels like it's in the business of whiteness fundamentally um, and uh, from like an economic standpoint, but also from reproducing these really traditional um cis hetero sort of like white supremacist notions around courtship and romance and relationships and so chris harrison i felt often was the sort of the patriarch of the show so it, you know he's he's the daddy that all the girls are going to complain to and he's kind of you know managing the social processes of the house um and i think we see that um with the the sort of you know asking the father for permission you know the kind of the, the role that family plays in the show and kind of reproducing and reaffirming these um sort of traditional white paradigms um so for me that's kind of you know that's how the right reason sort of filters into that and i think that ultimately then it's incredibly destructive and we end up with situations like the um kirkconnell situation and also the eric um i forget his last name but gabby's um pick um with him wearing blackface and that was just not addressed at all um so i think that it's a serious serious problem but i just wonder if it's possible for the show to break out of that you know jesse palmer seems to be like chris harrison 2.0 even if he's a little bit more personable in another way yeah and i think I'm a little bit ambivalent about how strategic of a move I think um, that whole conversation was um, also facilitated by Emmanuel Acho, which was also a choice. Um, but I also, I'm kind of wondering about what Chris did as speaking to like future contestants and like Bachelorverse more broadly. Cause I think, you know, Rachel did have to apologize and did have to say, don't defend me for Chris Harrison to do that for her. Cause I think there's just kind of like a system that's like feeding into itself there where there's like a message or like an underlying comment of, you know, 
There's probably a lot of people who would like to be on The Bachelor who have pictures in Pocahontas costumes or like antebellum gowns. Does that disqualify me? Are they going to find out? Are they going to reveal this about me and what's going to happen to me? Um, I don't know. I'm just thinking about Chris's move kind of saying like, hey, it's not great that you did that in the past, but we forgive you. So like you can still come like, yeah maybe defending some sort of future or defending viewers too, who are watching this. Yeah, Rhea, that's a really great point, especially that it requires a performance of innocence to be defended. Um, it's part of being there for the right reason. Somebody who can do the right sort of thing, uh, who can perform the right sort of apology, therefore is there for the right reasons. It, it, you're right. It's a sort of like logic that's built into it, isn't it? I think I have a more sinister view even that it's 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 good for business you know the the sort of concession in quotes of having Matt James cast on the show um you know was was um for optics an attempt to make amends but I think that the show benefits more when there's these um scandals or uncoverings because I can't believe that ABC doesn't have the money to do research on these contestants or hire somebody to go through their social media. Um, uh, you know, it, it's strategic. And if it does create conversations, good. But I just, you know, it all comes down to <laughs> it's a business, what's good for business. Um, but it's very disheartening because it's like, could you find nobody? Like there are people who don't have those things in the past, but maybe the overlap of the people who want to be on the bachelor aren't those people. Now, that's one of the things that was very interesting in Anne Van's essay, which was specifically about uh, the misuses of representation and what, what happens when we sort of buy into or understand the logic of representation as such as proper to labor as proper to let's say race and racism what happens what are the distortions that occur and in fact how is it an alibi for the corporations that are taking advantage of this so precisely what you're saying robin is is there a way in which diversity is something that is about the bottom line and this is of course one of the many critiques of the way that diversity discourse takes place especially institutionally it's almost always done to not change things but to help maintain a very specific bottom line. So it's a pretty destructive form of diversity discourse, one that is about mere representation or right reasons, and not one that's about justice or one that's about rethinking their normative paradigms. Well, with Mike Fleiss behind the camera until very recently, I like I thought I think about that a lot, like the conditions of production that goes into casting um, and just all of that. And I know that, you know, Mike Fleiss has since left the show along with Chris Harrison. Um, but, you know, what type of sort of, you know, changes in production are we going to see not in terms of just contestants, but also who is producing, who's editing, um, who's sort of framing these stories that we see. Um, so I really think that um, while Mike Fleiss was in charge, certainly, you know, diversity was absolutely not something he was interested in. Um, and so I wonder going forward, you know, what does that look like? You know, what are the conversations that are happening um, with production and casting and is something going to change? So I think that that might be a space where we might see change. But, um, you know, I think we'll have to perhaps see with Joey's season um, and, well, The Golden Bachelor. But I think that's that's something else. Another way that 
I think The Bachelor engages in discourses of diversity was also around ableism. So Leila Colón-Vale's essay or Vale's essay is thinking about the ways that the show responds to or thinks about increased awareness around mental health, especially in neurodiversity, how characters who have physical disabilities are talked about in the show, how it becomes part of their story. And it raises a big question to me, similar to the conversation about race and racism, how are certain people on these shows meant to be metonyms or representative? Can and should the space can can and should the show make space for these conversations? Is it weaponizing people's difference against them? Is even the way that ADHD is talked about in earlier seasons of the show as this sort of like preciousness, as somebody being there for the wrong reasons and excusing certain behaviors, right? There's a sort of very neurotypical, very ableist discourse around mental health or physical disability or deafness um, that the show participates in. I don't know, does the show raise, is there sort of an argument that you could make that the show raises awareness or at least is willing to have these conversations? Or is that just an alibi, again, for the ways that they're pursuing drama or conflict or narrative or the bottom line? Yeah, I think another cynical view um, is that it is strategic as well. Um, it's showing disability in a way that's controlled and a managed narrative um, through editing, of course, but also through who's being selected, how many people are on the show at once or in a season at once with any sort of um, disability. Um, and it's also, I don't know, it seems to be a distraction to um, having just like one person stand in for the ways that ableism is perpetuated on the show constantly. And there are the, there are conditions by production that are produced that are extremely taxing on people's mental health or any sort of invisible disabilities. Um, something that reading, rereading Layla's piece and thinking about that again, um, with this discourse around ADHD and neurodiversity, um, becoming something that is now being talked about, it made me think about all the earlier seasons where there would be someone who would have like um, a mental health crisis or would pass out at a rose ceremony or would do, you know, any sort of thing would happen and it became this whole thing about not being there for the right reasons. Like, oh, she just wanted attention, blah, 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 blah. Whereas now, as we're thinking about um, the conditions these shows produce, there are people I'm thinking specifically of like love is blind coming out and saying like, no, these, the conditions of production exasperated these problems that these challenges that I'm having or created some in some ways. So I don't know. I think while I do appreciate times where there is um, awareness raised, cause that does happen sometimes um, like Layla's piece does a really great job of showing the ways where it works and then the ways that it simultaneously doesn't work. Um, so you should read it. It's great. Um, but yeah, I think some things are definitely there to distract from and cover up from things that aren't as good. And in Layla's piece, you know, she specifically talks about Abigail, um, who is a contestant who's deaf um, on Matt James's season. And, you know, she gets the first impression rose and there's a lot of, you know, awareness raising, um, perhaps some people might say tokenizing happening there. Um, but then she doesn't ultimately win the show 
But she goes on Paradise and she does end up with, um, I think, Noah, right? Noah's his name. But on Paradise, there's a lot less focus. I mean, very little focus on her disability, uh, which I think is interesting. It was like it had its moment um, and was a, a way for the show to um, gesture towards diversity. And then on Paradise, it, it, it wasn't um, framed in the same way. On the opposite, I guess, end of the spectrum, like, um, in Lauren and Emma's essay, they analyze Demi's um, kind of arc on both um, as as a Bachelor contestant and then on Paradise, which when she goes on Paradise, Demi's a queer woman. And on Paradise, that is where um, it's not on the main show that she's queer. It's on Paradise that she, that, that narrative um, gets, um, you know, given given time and awareness. And, um, you know, I think I can't remember the exact quote that Emma and Lauren used, but I think they refer to paradise as kind of a, a B side, right. Of the show. And that's the only place that queerness is, is able to be, um, highlighted in that way. And paradise even expands the bachelor verse by inviting her girlfriend yeah. to the show. Yeah. And, you know, there are questions also of like, does she want to participate or not? You know, I, I think it's one of the big, really interesting questions. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the families too in a little bit. What does it take to actually involve all these other people in the show uh, who are willing or unwilling or witting or unwitting participants? Um, th- this is a little bit of like a reality show cross-pollination. But one of the things that was remarkably frustrating to me about the ultimatum queer love was Sam. If you remember Sam's character, who did not want to be there it was so clear to me and was clamming up wouldn't talk would go away would leave would take off her microphone uh take off their microphone i was like what sam doesn't want to be there it was just so clear to me that sam was there essentially bullied into it by their girlfriend uh and other people around uh i think ray was actually the same way um and actually has become clear afterwards that she did not want to be there um and, and Lexi kind of made her, uh, partially for career reasons, partially for other reasons. And so just watching the ultimatum was remarkable, seeing just what does it mean for people to want to be there or not want to be there? And then the ones who don't want to be there get accused of not being there for the right reasons. And then what does it mean when it's often people of color, women of color in particular, who are just like being coerced into these roles or coerced into ways of putting up with stuff that is just not okay but then have to be there for the right reasons and therefore have to put up and like quite literally suffer through pretty excessive levels of bullshit, to be really frank about it. I think what um, are you talking about the families that happen, like when they meet the families and like that. Yeah, that narrative. Um, also, by that time in the show, I'm kind of out of it. I really like the earlier <laughs> when more people are there. But, um, you know, it, it really replicates this heteronormative because if you there's um, there's a contestant who didn't want his father there, they're like, you have to. It's like, why do you have to? Again, this idea of chosen family and, you know, blood is is thicker than all that. And you have to have this this replication of a, a man and wife, um, you know, for the father to take the guy aside and say, you know, be good to my daughter. And it's, it's, it's not only cringe, but it's actually to the point where that, that's where that line goes for me, where it's no longer enjoyable. Um, I know on recently they've sort of had people choose who they see as their family um, to come on, but that's kind of really one of the, one of the many egregious things that kind of, um, you know, overstep my fandom. 
Yeah, Lisa Beckleheimer's essay really does talk about this. It's, she, so she takes these psychological concepts of authoritarian, authoritative, permissive, and it was fascinating how they did map onto a lot of these family visits or hometown visits. And in fact, you see various fathers in particular being remarkably possessive is maybe the only way to put it. Uh, domineering, demanding certain chivalric chivalric standards or, say, rituals. Um, so what do you all make of that sort of question of family or of parenting that the show does participate in, even if it's not explicitly talking about the family form, as Lauren Berlant might put it, it's still talking about, well, the family form and what it takes to reproduce a family or to be searching for a family for the right reasons, uh, to borrow that phrase again. So, yeah, what do you all make of those of the family in The Bachelorverse? I am obsessed with contestants saying, my parents have the most beautiful relationship and that's what I want for my relationship. Like, I immediately, I'm like, oh, like, what? <laughs> really? How interesting. But I think it's like, it's fetishistic and reproducing that cis white, you know, heteronormative white picket fence kind of notion of this idealized family. And I think that you are... Nowadays, you're less punished, I think, from diverging from that. But I know that, you know, Gabby, for example, she talked about her difficult relationship she had with her mother. Um, and that was suddenly a huge issue for her being a viable romantic partner. Um, that if you have an experience with a family that doesn't align with your mom and dad met when they were 18, like at a high school football game and stayed married for 50 years, then you're suspect perhaps because you don't have a template of this ideal family to then replicate yourself. Um, and I think that we really see that with the sort of asking for permission um, and marriage. Um, so I'm always very interested when contestants sort of explicitly seek to replicate those dynamics. Um, and then when they're punished either from, you know, um, you know, divorce, having to divorce themselves or parents being divorced, um, they're seen as, um, you know, othered in some way. Um, and I, I still think that we're seeing that. I'm very curious to see um, if Joey's father is going to be represented on his season because he discussed his parents' divorce when his father came out. Um, and so that is an open question how the bachelor is going to be able to um present different forms of family i don't know if it can within the confines of the show i'm also being a bit cynical and pessimistic but yeah and to both your points um and francisco what you said earlier with people who don't want to be there being there on the show that is always a part that kind of pushes me further to the critical side of the fan critic um, divide. Um, Cause it's kind of that moment that like jolts you back and reminds you like, we're stepping outside of like the fantasy of the show and the things that we've all agreed upon as norms. And there is like an outside voice of reason, depending on whether or not you agree with that reason. Um, like Lisa does a great job talking about these three different parenting styles. Um, but it is still like a reminder that there's something existing outside of the show and reminding you that, People are being asked to get engaged and get married within a ridiculously short amount of time with someone they haven't spent a lot of time with. Um, but I think um, specific like parents that I've thought about or family members that I've thought about on the show that kind of remind you about these questions of um, even race and representation in the show. Um, Matt James's um, season, they brought his father on the show, um, which really kind of jolts you out of the world of The Bachelor and reminds you that some a lot of these things that are happening, a lot of these conditions of production are really just not ethical. Um, 
And yeah, so I think the hometown visits do a really good job of reminding you um, of reality, but then also can also um, highlight some of those um, more contentious sticking points with what the show's doing. Yeah, thinking too about the question of family, I do not remember the name of the contestant, but the young woman who uh, was in foster care and the show made this so dramatic and so important. And it didn't even think about these questions of what does it mean to make this person talk about something that's very important to her, but also is deeply unsettling. And she has to tell the story in front of the camera because they're they're bonding. Right. People talk about this when they're bonding or talking, but the depths to which. The depths of drama that the show makes out of these moments, these moments of actual intimacy or discussion or family or talking about how family is and is not normative or how one imagines one's family or how one has a chosen family. It really becomes, I think, dismaying, to be frank, sometimes uh, to see these conversations just being exploited for the drama or a narrative. Um, maybe, maybe I'm becoming too cynical and too uh, sort of knee-jerk and pretty typical knee-jerk, actually, because there is also, I think, important work being done here. Um, it does help us as fans or as viewers to watch certain family interactions and think about where people are coming from, too. So maybe on a m- more optimistic note or a more generous note, and maybe, Rhea, you prompted us to think you know, about fans, fandom-producing generosity— it does also help us understand people. It actually does help us sometimes see what does it mean to have an authoritarian parent or a deeply permissive parent and seeing these young men and women trying to make it, uh, even though maybe they don't have support or maybe they have too much support uh, and so on and so forth. So may- maybe maybe you all agree, maybe you disagree. It does also help us understand uh, certain things, certain family dynamics and so on. Yeah, and just generally, I think it's so fascinating that, like, when we talk about how does the show build a character, maybe that used to be around jobs or other facets of their um, personality, but there was, like, again, a market shift. And I think, well, I'm curious to hear what you all think, but, like, that comes around the time that social media begins to play a much bigger role in the show where, like, trauma and, you know, revealing one's trauma, um, whether related to family or otherwise, like, is such a crucial part of the show and becomes this almost but almost banal and rote, um, you know, milestone in the show. And I think it's fascinating because I think it maps on to some debates happening in like literary critical, I mean, cultural criticism too, about like, you know, the trauma novel and the ethics or aesthetic um, uh, possibilities or lack thereof of that of, you know, trauma as a, a narrative engine, um, as a way to build a character. Um, but yeah, that, that really stood out in kind of the, the historical development of The Bachelor to me. It's a strategic move. Um, you know, I think about when somebody is, there's a moment and it's, <laughs> you see it where they go on the date, they're at like the fake restaurant on the stage of, you know, country singers about to come out, but they say, oh, I have to really tell you something. And unsolicited, they'll say, this is my trauma. This is what I went through as if this is one of the steps you have to go through to find love. Um, and sometimes it's used, I, uh, there are times when it's used when somebody feels like they're maybe in competition with someone. So to get a leg up, um, they share their trauma because it's sort of, it's like I'm being vulnerable. And now if you reject me, you look awful. And it's, 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 quite gross I mean I can't think of the words it's the part that really really you know and it's like they 
that they the contestants feel like they have no other thing to offer than than their trauma. Um, you know, and then the, the the bachelor says, "Thank you for telling me that. Thank you. That was really hard." It's like, okay, but she didn't, have, she didn't owe that to you. <laughs> so yeah, it's a kind of an, a real ache in the show. I agree. It's also interesting how we're, we watch this, like how trauma is performed as well. And there's either like a good or bad disclosure. Um, either you're using your trauma to get like a pity rose, or you're you know, um, creating some sense of intimacy with you and the lead. Um, and so I think that that's also very interesting in the way that like these disclosures have changed and also how different leads manage the disclosures almost as a type of, um, uh, you know, a type of work too. Like there's a good or bad way to respond. And I think increasingly with social media, we've seen, you know, fans, you know, be more critical of, you know, receptions of certain disclosures like that, you know, you didn't really listen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's also kind of interesting just to see the the reception of the disclosures changing with social media. And now we're weighing in as well as, as audience members on that too. Yeah, this maybe goes back to one of the points, uh, Annie, you brought up earlier about the contestants' queerness coming forth in Bachelor in Paradise. Is there a place for disclosures where they're actually more narratively possible or okay? I mean, even think about Colton's disclosure, right? Uh, how actually horrifying a lot of what happens is up to that point. And, right, he's getting in legal trouble, he's talking, he's coming out. It's just like, but then the question comes, when does a disclosure come? What would it have meant? Uh, and th- so then maybe it raises the stakes of even honesty. Um, Colton wouldn't have been allowed to be The Bachelor. We wouldn't know who he is if it weren't for this. It- it's actually really remarkable. Um, and then what happens when disclosure does have to happen? What, what is it used for? What is So it- it- I think it raises a lot of really fascinating questions about the nature of disclosure, of the real, of truth. And then other spaces. Maybe that's why the sort of expansion of the Bachelor verse is so fascinating. You do get these spaces where people can talk to each other as Bachelor contestants and disclose certain things or talk about what disclosure means. So to me, it's super fascinating the way that the sort of Bachelor verse. Well, I don't know. Is it a family of sorts? Uh, it it kind of seems that way. Yeah, I'm also thinking how some of these interactions play out sort of um, off the show in between after the final rows or sort of in that space as well. Like that seems like a really interesting liminal space to me where we... um, the show expands itself into the public sphere onto social media, talking about, you know, cheating scandals or breakups or things like that. But then we enter back into the space of the show and these kind of carefully managed spaces to talk through um, certain incidences or not. Um, and I think that, um, you know, uh, instances of racism, that's something that isn't always discussed. But if it's about, you know, the relationship breakup, it is. And so that's interesting as well how um, that sort of it filters back into the ecosystem of the show. Or or those conversations are only happening um, in fan-dominated spaces. One of the, this is, again, sort of shoehorning part of the conversation, but the family and hometown visits also is brought up in Madeline Sharon's essay about food, something I did not realize, but I'm always fascinated by food study scholars who notice this type of stuff. It's really remarkable. I, I don't have the eye for it, but they do. Food appears in deeply ritualistic ways in The Bachelor. Either the sort of once-a-day communal gatherings or the hometown feast. Other than that, people don't eat, people don't snack, people aren't. What is going on here with the food? I, and again, completely mind-blowing. I don't notice these things, but then to have Madeline pointing it out and just how deeply ingrained it is into questions of rituals, 
beauty norms, relaxation, leisure, family time. What did you all make of this? Or what do you all make of the the status of food on The Bachelor and its relationships to things like family, to uh, togetherness, and so on? I know Robin and I have discussed this before, um, how food is sort of um, also appears um, sort of in the international dates as well. Um, that's very interesting as um, to exoticize certain locations. Um, that's very interesting that, you know, the contestants like punish with having to eat whatever gross out food, you know, um, whatever it is, whatever location they are and how that, um, you know, they have to perform, you know, eating whatever food that is. And so that's really interesting how, you know, food can kind of create a sense of home and also create a sense of, um, of othering as well in the dynamics of the show, because, and we so rarely do see food as this, as a, um, uh, you know, plays with that then, you know, when we do see it in international locations or in hometown dates, I think it has a huge amount of significance, um, of cultural significance and social significance that kind of comes up there. Yeah. And I think there's also something about how like the food and yeah, frankly, the deprivation thereof, um, from contestants, like became a, uh, a way to kind of, uh, poke some holes in the like shiny facade of the bachelor and other reality tv like i remember when i was still watching the bachelor somewhat uncritically a turning point for me was when like someone told me that like oh the contestants don't get to eat for many hours they have to stay up super late to film they're like drinking a ton that's why all of this erratic behavior happens frankly and um yes kind of this understanding of food and the denial of, of food to contestants like is uh uh re like yeah reframes the kind of behind the scenes of the bachelor from something kind of like funny to something like actually quite sinister and it the show feeds into that too because when you see food talked about outside of those like spaces where it's okay is usually somebody like getting sick from eating too yes. much food. Like that's the only way it's talked about. Like I think there's John Paul Jones. Is that a yes. character that happens or a character, a contestant that happens yes. to in paradise. Um, and there's another, does anyone remember the woman? I can't remember her name, but it had something to do with maybe shrimp or some sort of food. There we oh, go. Yeah. 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 Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it really does reinforce that idea that like food is only appropriate in those certain contexts and every other context. It is dealt with really weirdly. Like, um, yeah, Emily and Annie were just saying. I think it's interesting, too, because this is where like kind of the production and the narrative collides, because a, a lot of times when you have food, especially when they're on the date, um, it marks continuity in time. And when you want to take everything and re-edit it and assemble it back, um, which is why kind of the joke on Love is Blind, the wine goblets are solid so that they don't see how time passes or like if somebody's drink is full. Um, but I think it's still, I mean, it still has an effect, but I mean, that's a lot, a lot of the reasons that sometimes reality shows don't show food, but it's also part of this weird ritual where one of the major dates is they go to like an abandoned place with a table, get served food, and they don't eat any of it. Um, and then it gets taken away again. It's sort of this just, oh, that's what you do, right? Like you take a lady out on a date and you go to dinner and then you, you know, that's what a date is. 
I'm reminded of uh, the earlier seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race when the final three contestants would have their uh, fancy dinner with uh, Michelle and RuPaul, and it was always a single tic tac. Yeah, uh, and yeah. it's both poking fun, but it's also actually really vicious. Yeah, the uh, sort of RuPaul RuPaul's own versions of body normativity. Mm-hmm. That's for another conversation. Yeah, love that show, but my goodness, yeah. some of the things that the yeah. early seasons in particular do. Or kind of unbelievable yeah. at this point, right? <laughs> but yeah, the Tic Tac, it, it's both poking fun at shows like The Bachelor, but also it's actually telling a truth mm-hmm. about normativity, beauty, and food. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, so maybe it's having it's having it both ways, having its Tic Tac and eating it too or something. I don't know. Yeah. One of the last questions I have for you all, and actually there are a couple more questions, but one of them is, has the right reasons changed over time? Maybe this is connected to the labor question that we talked about, the jobs question, or maybe about diversity or about trauma or about disclosure. But have the right reasons changed? And why do people still argue about the right reasons? I definitely, I do think that we've seen an evolution in being here for the right reasons, that if we look back at like the very first seasons, um, the reality television industry and influencing was still kind of an evolving space. Um, And so I think, you know, today maybe the right reasons aren't to be like Joey's wife, like specifically his wife, but the right reasons are to be on the journey of becoming a wife or becoming a husband, that that that's really the right reason. Um, And the only wrong reason you can be on the show is for exposure, which is of course like deeply ironic. Um, And, I think that that it's that sort of that transformation into a marriageable person. So you might not get married to the bachelor, but the right reasons are to then get married a bachelor in paradise or to get married to the guy you meet at stagecoach, you know, or something like that. Um, and so, and I do think that women often get accused of being there for the wrong reasons more frequently. I don't have the numbers on that, but that would also be interesting to crunch. Um, but I think that that has kind of evolved that you're, there to transform into a marriageable partner, even if it's not specifically for that particular lead. I think the genre of the show has changed, even if it's explicit or not, because is it, I've heard it described as a dating reality show, a competition reality show, dating competition reality show, which is really troubling. So, um, you know, depending on how it's framed, the right reasons, the right reasons are, are, are always a moving target. Yeah, that, that that would be an interesting question. Maybe I should have let off with that. How do you all define the show? Um, I, I think of it as a competition show purely uh, mm-hmm. for, for my own purposes. Yeah. Even like as the show has evolved to now, you know, it's the open secret that everyone goes on the show for exposure and to be an influencer. I think like as as Megan's uh, Megan Cole's essay pointed out um the labor of love, which is a great essay. Everyone should read it like the even if. There is even a right reason uh, to be there for influence and um, for clout. And it's, you know, if you are entrepreneurial, if you are like hard, if you position yourself as like a hardworking influencer who's always doing things, producing content like that is, you know, the right version of being an influencer as opposed to like um, Victoria, the one whose job was listed as queen, right? Like that is the wrong, the wrong version. That's the villain version of being an influencer, being there for clout. Whereas like Hannah Ann and Maddie Pruitt and all of these women who've, you know, turned their, um, 
appearance on the show into social media followings, like their social media very much depends on this like version, like super high performing entrepreneurial, um, that former bachelor contestant. And maybe I'll give a generous um, (laughs) take on this. Um, I think with my like growing cynicism and dissatisfaction about the show, something that has kind of kept me going when I've stuck with it is the right reasons kind of evolving into some sort of like self-development. It's, it's kind of taking place like alongside this, plot of becoming, you know, wifey material or whatever. There's also like that message of like getting right with yourself in some ways. Um, I think about um, Ashley Iconetti, if anyone um, is familiar with her. She had a really long arc on the show through different um, spinoffs and was just really active in Bachelor Nation and all of that. Um, But we really watch her like change from when she's first on the show and is like, very emotional all the time, which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being emotional, but Ashley herself talks about like not liking, you know, who she was and her growth. Um, and even other contestants too, the ones that I've continued to follow on Instagram, the ones who have not, who've made the cut and haven't been <laughs> unfollowed in my changing ideas about things. It's yeah. Another right reason is just seeing like them end up with someone who is good to them or them, ending up, you know, with a better relationship to themselves or something else um, to kind of become that wifey or hubby material, but in a way that's like authentic and true for them. So that way these relationships actually last. One of the most interesting ways that the right reasons I think was talked about, or maybe one of the most playful ways that the right reasons was talked about in the cluster was Emily Bacall's essay comparing uh, The Bachelor to a Jane Austen novel. And right, very famously, Jane Austen novels and novels of manners have characters who are there for the right reasons. They're the ones who get rewarded. They're the Elizabeth Bennets. They're the the Darcys who end up being there for the right reasons, but are assumed to be nefarious. But it's really remarkable how much characterologically, how much narratively, we've got the sentimentalism of the novel of manners uh, arising again. So it was a really fascinating way to think about how reward happens within this universe and how it is connected to various forms of literary production and literary forms. So, Dad, what do you make of the sort of sentimentality of the way that The Right Reasons is you know, plays out moralistically. Is is it like a Jane Austen novel? Uh, are we seeing this sort of reemergence through different media forms of older ideas about justice, of morality, of just desserts? I really love this essay because it played with that notion of like convention so much. And I, I think that that is maybe really why I enjoy watching the show is because I love learning the rules, um, the manners, um, uh, the lore of Bachelor Nation um, and seeing these things get played around with and breached and then um, rectified in different ways. I think of Corinne, I think it was, who like went to sleep during the rose ceremony because she had a rose, if I'm remembering right, and everyone freaked out because how could she possibly do something so horrifying as just like go to bed even though she had a rose and she was like, I'm just tired. But that was a, uh, 
a fundamental breach in the fabric, the social contract of the show. And, you know, she had to be punished in some way. Um, and that those are the moments um, I think that w- I get a lot of pleasure from viewing, like knowing those rules and convention and then sort of watching that play out on social media in real time. Um, and so I think this is a really useful way to think about the show um, and to engage in critique um, by looking at those, um, you know, structures and rules and conventions. Yeah, I also loved, um, Emily. I loved all the essays, but I, I loved Emily's uh, because it like not only implicates, you know, the producers and the world of the show, but of course, like implicates the fans um, and thinks about how, you know, these, uh, the alignments that you make, the forms of judgment that you make are, um, yeah, are being calibrated, um, like based on the the show and these conventions around it and kind of your own participation in this bizarre moral universe, which is so pleasurable. Um, I mean, I think like Emily has said, I mean, like that's truly one of the pleasures of the show is the conventions and the doling out moral judgments. Um, even though these things become like so standardized over time that like, I, I still find something like thrilling about it. Yeah, it it is also linked to literary history. We often forget that authors, even hundreds of years ago, were responding to fan critiques. You know, think about Samuel Richardson when he's writing Clarissa and Pamela, is actually thinking about and changing things. Thinking about Dickens responding to the fact that you know his works are being serialized. People are responding to this work. Uh, same with Pauline Hopkins in the American scene, like the very famous serial novelist. People. They've written what they've written, but they also do change things based on what people say. So think about, you know, yeah, hundreds of years ago, Samuel Richardson writing letters back to people, uh, trying to answer their demands. How can you let this happen to somebody? Uh, how could you possibly, in thinking about the stakes of that morality, it does seem The Bachelor is, in fact, an inheritor of this literary mode. So maybe that's another way of reading it, too. It's, it is doing literary work in a pretty interesting and engaged way. And maybe we can look at it that way again uh, or continue to. Yeah. So my last question, uh, I have a couple of questions and it has to do about the futurity of the franchise. Are we going to see explicitly queer bachelor uh, seasons? Are we going to see more golden bachelors? Are you team Leslie or team Teresa? Um, what was the golden bachelor to you all? Was it something to ignore? Was it something that just pulled you right back in? Um, so tell me about the golden bachelor. Tell me about the futures of the franchise. I'm obsessed with the golden bachelor. I've watched all of it. Um, I, and I think it's interesting too, that in reviving the franchise, uh, in terms of viewership numbers, it seems that like returning to some really like hyper traditionalist, like Gary, like the most basic white man in the world, like from middle America, like very, so traditionalist, like that's what has pulled me back in. Um, and I guess a lot of other viewers too, um, is doing something different, but I think really it's been the fact that we've seen older women on screen. That is what has excited me most is seeing different types of contestants and different stories told thinking about, um, how cool Leslie is and her experience, um, you know, just seeing different forms of representation, I think has been really enriching. Um, and so I'm extremely excited for the golden bachelorette. I hope that Leslie, 
Leslie will be the pick. Um, although I respect Teresa for being a girl boss trader. Um, I'm very curious to kind of see um, how they play around with that with a golden bachelorette season and, and what it would look like to see um, kind of, you know, older men, you know, as a cast as well. But um, I'm a bit pessimistic about um, that traditional product of The Bachelor being revamped in a way because I just think that the conditions of production and the conventions just trend towards this exclusionary um, kind of regressive mode. Um, so I would be curious to see what happens in some of these spinoffs like Bachelor in Paradise and The Golden Bachelor. But um, yeah, I'm taking a wait and see approach. The possibilities are incredible. Also, you heard it here first, Leslie, the Golden Bachelorette. I, but also having the the contestants of the Golden Bachelor in Bachelor in Paradise with everyone else would also raise really interesting uh, like stakes. I, I I'm just fascinated to see how far the Bachelorverse will take this. Sorry, everyone else. What are the futures? The Golden Bachelor. I just really like anything that has older women um, in really with relationships. I mean, you know, like back to like the Golden Girls. I think is. And is also another reason I, I'm a big Housewives fan, but that's a whole other podcast and situation. Um, I think that I enjoyed it. Again, I tend to like the beginning episodes, but I felt at the end it, it was sort of just veering back into the traditional that we always see. Um, you know, and uh, Gary just s- such an obvious, like, you knew he was going to pick Tree. Like, it just was obvious and there was no nuance to him. But I usually don't care about, like, the actual Bachelor. I like the other contestants. But I think there was still some missed opportunities um, in that. But, you know, I, I can't keep my standards very high when it comes to The Bachelor. There was also very little diversity in that cast, which is just not, which is just, there's no excuses for it. Yeah, my confession, it's I have not watched all of The Golden Bachelor. I watched like the first three episodes and kind of for whatever reason ran out of steam. And I think it was partially Gary. Um, but I, I will I want to finish it now. I will, especially knowing that um, there will be The Bachelorette. But I also love the idea of paradise, um, multi-generational paradise, should we say. And I also, you know, I was rereading Lisa's essay today about parenting, and I would love to hear her take on the version of Hometowns and the Golden Bachelor, which is like the children are, you know, playing this uh, authoritarian or or passive role. I will also confess that my last seasons of The Bachelor, I, yeah, I did get disillusioned to a point where I moved on to other reality shows, which is kind of why Annie and I talked about this being our final rose for The Bachelor. Um, I do love that The Golden Bachelor has gotten so much um, praise. All of the, even though I don't watch as much, um, I still follow a lot of the um, podcasts and um, fan accounts on Instagram, um, and I've seen all of them raving about it. Um, But similarly to Robin, though, I think it would be hard for me to return because I do think that even if there's change, even if there's progress, it's going to be just slotted back into these same normative roles, maybe with just different identities, um, but kind of more of the same. But I am at least excited that um, those fans will have something that's at least good television again and more people who are there for maybe different right reasons, but those are continuing to evolve. I think to all of your points, maybe one of the reasons it was such a successful reboot or 
I shouldn't say reboot. One uh, another successful offshoot is because people kept harping on Gary's decency as though that's a return to something. So even this question of return and to decency, well, first, what are we returning to? What is the decency that was there in the first place? I don't agree uh, that it was something there in the first place. So what is he standing for, actually, as somebody who brings things back? I, I understand he's a nice guy, but what does it mean that so much is made, semiotically even, about his decency that it seems as a return of something. It, it's it's dog whistly to me, to be really frank. Yeah, Make very the bachelor great again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very re- reactionary, I think, too. Yeah, and it's almost like in some ways, yeah, the bachelor getting to, um, you know, like expand and say, oh, we're, you know, bringing older people into this franchise, but doing so in a way that is, yeah, as you said, Francis, like very dog whistly, reactionary, and like return to like actually like the, you know, the most traditional thing possible, like a 60 year old white man being the person, you know, with the power who's one of the dates was to go to a 50s diner and relive the 50s. You know what I mean? It's. <laughs> But without the payoff of the Pulp Fiction retro date, right? Yeah. Well, and I think the the Hollywood Reporter piece on, you know, Gary's sort of past relationship experience, like even Pierce says that too. And so I think that that um, actually adds, you know, that is the type of man he is, you know, and it wasn't like a huge hit piece, but just that he was kind of like not the best boyfriend to this woman and you know and I just think that 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 is Gary um and I think like that return to this um traditional model of masculinity I think feels very neat um in another way so what's the future is it everyone else's final rose too or is there a future that you'd like uh for the show yeah the traditional like OG type I'm I'm a little bit it's just I know people like familiarity, but like you gotta change something and they just are digging their heels in. Yeah, I think I've enjoyed Love is Blind and The Queer Ultimatum like much more than The Bachelor lately. Um, And The Golden Bachelor is what kind of brought me back in. Um, So I don't know. I'm not quite ready to give up on the franchise as as like a a fan. Um, But I think that ABC is going to have to sort of reevaluate maybe its structure given the competition that we now do see with Love Island, Love is Blind, um, the ultimatum, the queer ultimatum, that this is not the only um, product that people could choose to watch anymore. Um, And so I think that maybe that will perhaps push some changes where fan pressure um, has not. And there has been, I think, incredible um, fan pressure um, from different quarters to make fundamental changes to the show. So I'm curious to see, um, you know, maybe not next season but in the next couple of years if um if the reality television ecosystem um will force changes in that respect i'll dip a toe in i'll I'll check in but i don't think i can i can commit the time i used to yeah it's also just a lot of time which i had more of when i was like in college and you know in other times in my life um but yes although it's it's nothing compared to the time commitment of like love island for instance which is every night yeah, many, many hours a week. Well, thank you all so much. And I hope that we have more conversations about The Bachelor and other reality shows soon. Thank you. That was my colleague Francisco Robles in conversation with Ria Moffat, Annie Barres, Robin Hershkowitz, and Emily Edwards. You can read all the wonderful essays in The Bachelor cluster at post45.org slash contemporaries. That's also where you can find over 50 previous clusters 
We've got lots more coming your way very soon and lots more Pod 45 too. You can follow us on what remains of Twitter and now on Blue Sky as well. The handle for both of those is at at post 45. If you're interested in pitching us an idea for a cluster, you can email us at post45contemporaries at gmail.com. Further information on what we look for in a pitch can be found on our website, which again is post45.org slash contemporaries. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And if you'd like to leave us a positive rating and review, that does help other people find the show. I've been your host, Michael Doherty. You've been listening to Pod 45.